freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hello there, people. It's, hello, it's, hello. Hello, it's Ron Coleman and his, uh, his son, Rabbi Usher Coleman, from, coming in from California, where it's dry and beautiful. How Too about dry. California? Too dry, right? That's the problem over there? That is the perennial problem. We're going to talk our about problems. Too dry. Our aquifers are too dry. It's uh, it's trouble everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> if it's not one thing, it's another. That's what they say. And perhaps we'll be able to fit that into our theological or historical or wide-ranging discussion tonight. I thought it would just be a. Now that I've got a few people who like to listen to me that have been established listeners too, it seemed to me that it would just be a darn shame if I couldn't. Uh, expose some people who I know, I, I know that I get a lot of feedback here. Um, when I say here, I mean right here in my room in Clifton, New Jersey. I believe it. Through the magic of the ethernets about the, the ways and, and the thought ways and think ways and sensibilities of the, of the Jewish people. And uh, I'm gonna, those. those people. <laughs> I, I'm gonna be um, kind of getting, there's gonna be a lot of, absent spots in the coming month and Rosh Hashanah is next Tuesday and Wednesday uh, but for that reason I thought uh, first I was thinking well maybe I'll, I'll say a few words about Rosh Hashanah and then I said that would really be presumptuous of me because I'm I may very well be better qualified to say those words than most of the people within the sound of my voice <laughs> but there are people who are far better qualified than I. And I started going through my mind of the names of all the rabbis that I know, real rabbis, so-called rabbis and otherwise. And it occurred to me, I think I know somebody who might have actually had some interesting things to say about Rosh Hashanah and maybe can answer some questions that I genuinely can ask because I don't know the answers to them. So I introduced to you in his world internet broadcast and otherwise debut. Rabbi Asher Coleman. What do you do for a living, Mr. Coleman, Rabbi Coleman? What do I do for a living? So I work for a nonprofit organization here in the Bay Area, California. It's known as, here's the plug, Jewish Study Network, Jewish headed Studies. by none other, the great Rabbi Joey Felsen. Um, our purpose is, I am actually reciting the motto, the motto of our organization is raising the level of Jewish literacy in the Bay Area. Um, the Bay Area is home to something in the neighborhood of half a million Jews. Um, that number is, has almost lost all significance because of how disconnected many, many of these Jews are from their heritage. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of kind of alt versions of the heritage that are floating around here. And I don't wanna, you know, talk <laughs> about school, but uh, you know, it's not the real thing. Um, and, there's a very, I would say, aggressive and ambitious effort that we've been doing before, since before I joined the organization just a couple of years ago. The organization's been around for about 20 years, um, trying to hold together the remnants of that population. There are nodes 
of people who are still observant traditional Orthodox Jews who have always been here. Um, always? Yeah, well, always. Uh, since the 70s, since the 60s and 70s. Yeah, that's pretty much. As Stanford grew in prominence and then subsequently with the tech industry, um, you got nodes of Orthodox Jews. And in the last 10 or 15 years, a wave of Israelis, first high-tech Israelis, and interestingly now, not in Palo Alto, but more in the surrounding areas, which are a little uh, less expensive, you have a wave of Israeli blue-collar workers, um, uh, people who work in construction. Uh, so there is this, there are, there are there's a surprisingly large uh, market for real serious in-depth Jewish content. So that's what we try to provide. Very good. And uh, how did you prepare for this job of yours of providing this content, as we call it on the internet? So um, uh, coming up, I, uh, uh, I talked a lot. <laughs> I don't know. I, I had to say the experience that it did not end up. You want me talking a lot, right? And well, so, <laughs> and so um, I combined that with a, a love of, of reading and of learning, which as, um, as a, you, anyone, everyone can see from my father's background, uh, I didn't come up with myself. Um, Those are his books. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, yeah, I do recognize a good number of them. <laughs> I see the Reagan book. I see the Adams book. Um, so, you know, uh, moving on to, as, as I did from the high school age and on, I, I moved into the, the world of the traditional, what are known as the Lithuanian yeshivas because a yeshiva is a, uh, a school of traditional higher Jewish education, right? It's not like a Hebrew school where you learn Hebrew uh, and you, you know, learn to pray and things like that. When you show up at a yeshiva, the assumption is you know how to pray at a daven, you know how to read, and now you're gonna be taught how to think um, and how to pursue uh, higher, more, you know, really elite levels of devotion and service. Uh, and I was in, in some ways very well prepared in some in other ways, ill-prepared uh, for that experience. Um, and I was given the opportunity to study and to develop the traditional techniques of study, which unfortunately very few Jews today are afforded. And that enabled me to do serious work, which I am fortunate to be able to do to this day. Uh, not everyone gets to well into their 20s, almost their 30s, uh, pursue higher Jewish learning. There's not, uh, there are no big grants. There are actually, there are very few big grants. There, there are some, but there, there are no big grants for this sort of thing. And so I'm very fortunate to, you know, be able to do this in an environment where in exchange for giving to the community when I can, I'm, I'm allowed to pursue my own studies most of the day. And so that's really the answer as to how, how I got where I got is I did the traditional thing and I also am quite accustomed to shooting my mouth off. Well, you know, I, I think you're past the age of, you're past the point of shooting your mouth off. And yeah, no, no, no one can stop me now. <laughs> okay, so with that, with that introduction, I would say that um, I'd like to get into the, into the topic I promised everybody, which is to explain what Rosh Hashanah is, we, as, I, as I put it in sort of my, uh, my, my subtitle, which you probably haven't seen because you're being busy and not being on the internet. Um, the question I asked was, well, I, I made a pun as I tend to do, what's the rush? What, what, what kind of new year is this? There's no champagne, there are no, no streamers, right. uh, no, no, no uh, old acquaintance being forgot, quite to the, quite to the contrary, in fact. Um, what 
why do, do why do the Jews do all this moping around the time of New Year? And and where do we find this in the Torah in the Bible? I don't. Where's the Rosh, in the index? I didn't find Rosh Hashanah. Correct. Correct. The, the phrase Rosh Hashanah um, doesn't appear. I I am not your. I'm, I'm not a. a the kind of person like I have relatives who actually know the whole Chumash. It's like an open book in front of them. Chumash the Pentateuch. Read through the Chumash, you know, as every Pentateuch. Hmm? Chumash the Pentateuch, the five books the of Moses. Yes, the five books of Moses. Right. So I have not. Um, I'm, I'm not one of those people who can recite verbatim passage after passage from the Bible. But based and on we're my, deeply ashamed of you for that reason. Right, of course. But based on my not as a friend of mine likes to say, so, so I have a friend who um, I'll give him a shout out. He's history courses on Twitter, um, Abraham Ash. And he someone once asked him on there, I think it was a Christian fellow, something about uh, something relating to the, the, you know, the importance of the Bible in Judaism. And he's like, it's not really our main book. We're, we're really more about the Talmud. And I was like, Avram, you know, you're basically right. We wouldn't say that because ultimately it is the literal written divine word. But most of our, you know, my study time is focused on the, the ancillary uh, literature like the Talmud. He, that, in other words, he said the part you're, you said that the part right. you're not he, supposed to say. Yeah, he's good at that. <laughs> um, and so uh, uh, follow him. He's cool. But anyway, um, so the only reference, the, the, the phrase Rosh Hashanah appears really, really late in the Bible, it's in the prophets, in the prophet Ezekiel, Yechezkel, um, and it doesn't seem to, based contextually, does not seem to refer to what we call Rosh Hashanah. By the way, the word, phrase Rosh Hashanah literally mean, means the head of the year, Rosh Hashanah. So you'll hear my father and myself, we're using, because we're Ashkenazic Jews from a fairly traditional, um, in my father's case, ethnically very traditional, and in my case also because I, I uh, came up in a yeshiva environment, which is very, very uber conservative. So we don't use the um, the modern Hebrew pronunciation. We'll use the uh, what's called the Ashkenazic pronunciation. So we'll say something like Rosh Hashanah, which is grammatically a nightmare, but it's actually the way that Jews said those words uh, for, you know, at some point over the centuries, it blended into that grammatical nightmare. But what it means is Rosh Hashanah, right? It's the head of the year. It's the beginning of the year. And so, uh, it doesn't seem like that's what the prophet's referring to there based on the context clues. And what's very interesting is that in an agrarian society, which is what the ancient Israelites were, you might think that the Rosh Hashanah maybe is the, um, you know, the season, the season in which you plant or the season in which you harvest. But Rosh Hashanah actually really isn't that. It kind of falls in between. Um, it's a little bit in advance of the, um, of the holiday of Sukkot, which is the end of the farming season. Right? It's when you go inside, it, it, it comes right before the winter. So what we're actually kind of doing is we're really closing out the year at Rosh Hashanah. But in the Torah, in the- In other words, in, you mean, in other words, in contradistinction to the name which suggests- The beginning of the year, we're actually kind of, exactly, we're kind of closing out the year. And so you mentioned, you know, where's the party? So we do have a Rosh Hashanah, which is a party, right? And there's a Mishnah, um, the Mishnah is, I mentioned the Gemara before the Talmud, which is what I spend most of my day working on. But the Mishnah is actually the core text around which the Talmud is built. So we have the Torah, we have the written Torah, the five books of Moses. And on that, there's the Mishnah, which is this very um, concise and compressed corpus. That was an, a completely inadvertent alliteration. Um, concise and compressed corpus of uh, 
quotations and almost descriptions of disputes and uh, not, it's not always disputes, that's, that's a stereotype. Uh, sometimes it's just straight, straight facts uh, in which we, in which we from, from which we derive what we call the oral Torah. Now it's funny because we're talking about a text, it's books on my shelf, right? But there was a time up until really in a certain sense uh, still, but up until about 2000 years ago, when the only way you could access these teachings was by uh, memorizing them at the feet of a master. And that would be something that you would do uh, as a child. And then you would, if you were intellectually gifted, you'd know that corpus. And then if you had the ability or the wealth or whatever to continue down that path, you would engage in the practice, which we call Gemara or Talmud, which is the practice of dissecting, of figuring out these cryptic, compressed um, statements and what are they really about. And, and it is something you can spend your entire life, multiple lifetimes doing. It is a massive, massive corpus. Um, so when the Mishnah, th there's a tractate of the Mishnah, which is called Rosh Hashanah. And it is to my knowledge, the first description of Rosh Hashanah is Rosh Hashanah because it's all about Rosh Hashanah. And it opens by saying there's actually four Rosh Hashanahs, Arba Rosh Hashanah, main. there are four Rosh Hashanahs, right? There are four beginnings of the year and actually most of them are, are beyond the scope of what we're talking about. But if you wanna know which one we celebrate in, that's the one that starts in Nisan. The month of Nisan is, what the whenever the Torah talks about the order of months, it's counting from Nisan. Nisan is, is month one, and that's laid out as before the Jews even really leave the land of Egypt, right before the Exodus. The first mitzvah, the first commandment we receive is, this month, and it was the month of Nisan, because that's when Pesach happened, this month is for you. What's Pesach? What's Pesach? Pesach is Passover. Okay. Right. This month is for you, is for you the first of months. So the celebration that we observe in Nisan also known as Pesach or Passover, that's the party. Now, it's not the kind of um, debased party that the, <laughs> you know, the society around us seems to favor in which you are supposed to find some stranger to shack up with for the night. Um, it's kind of a more exalted and traditional thing uh, in which you are, uh, <laughs> in, in, which one is, in which one is supposed to gather with his family and celebrate and sing and praise God, but that's the celebration. Rosh Hashanah is something quite different. Um, the Rosh Hashanah, which, which is coming now, which is coming on Tuesday and Wednesday. That Rosh Hashanah in the Torah is described, not as in any way the first of them of anything, but what it is described as is like this. Oh, here it is. Here's how it goes. So this is in Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, 23, actually. Chavkimel, uh, Chavkimel. Right, God spoke to Moshe, to Moses, saying, speak to the children of Israel. And in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, right, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, if we count from the month of Nisan, Tishrei, which is the month which is about to come, the first day of Tishrei is Rosh Hashanah, that's the seventh month. On the first day of the month, what should you do? You shall observe complete rest. So first of all, it's established that is what is called a Shabbason. A Shabbason, that might remind you if you're familiar with the, of the Hebrew word, Shabbos, Sabbath. What Rosh Hashanah is first and foremost is, foremost is a Sabbath. It is a day on which 
we do not do prohibited categories of labor. So people who know my father know that he logs off. Right? He says, good Shabbos, and he posts a picture of a sunset uh, on Fridays. Why does he do that? Because Orthodox Jews do not use electricity. We, now that doesn't mean we don't have lights on, but we do not act, actively use electricity um, or use computers or drive in cars on Shabbos. So um, the hot take factory must close up for Shabbos. And like it must, just as it must close up for Shabbos, it's in the Bible, I don't, I don't make the rules. There are no hot takes permitted on Rosh Hashanah either. Um, which, my, which, I mean, there's certain, there are plenty of hot takes. There are plenty of hot takes. <laughs> but just not on the internet. Right. So on Rosh Hashanah, so that's like a symbol right away to us, right? That's a, a signal, I should say, right away to us. What are we doing? There are, there are many events, by the way, in the Jewish calendar that don't require a Shabbos, that don't require a, a, a work stoppage, um, not to be confused with a work stoppage, but there are, there, are plenty of, there are plenty of things, you know, we have Rosh Chodesh at the beginning of every month, we don't, not, we don't refrain from, you know, a lot of drive on Rosh Chodesh, we have, uh, I don't know, Hanukkah, Purim, we got all kinds of things, we pray three times a day, we're not pro prohibited from driving to shul, but there are days in which we're supposed to kind of pull back. And, and the most significant thing, again, it's always important to kind of reframe ourselves in agrarian terms, which is very hard. And um, you may have heard about the Industrial Revolution and its consequences, um, <laughs> what exactly they've meant for the human race. They have but, that in um, California also? Oh, oh boy. <laughs> but, um, but, but anyway, uh, when we say, all right, pull back from the world, stop sowing, stop planting, stop digging, all those things, what that means is that what that signals to the believing man is that this is a moment to recenter your, I don't know if it's right to call it your value system. It's more your whole frame, the way in which you engage with the world and pull it back a little from your personal achievements, from the things that you do in the real world. That's the first thing Rosh Hashanah is. We've got a lot of days like that throughout the calendar, including once a week on Saturday on Shabbos. That's the first thing it is. The second thing it is, second thing it is, is a two-word phrase, which elsewhere in the Torah, only one of these words gets used, and that is zichron teruah. Zichron teruah literally means a remembrance. Uh, some people want to translate this. The translation I have in front of me says a sacred occasion. I don't love that. Um, it's it's uh, maybe a convocation. Teruah. Teruah literally means loud blasts. So they say here, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. So those loud blasts might be, um, might be making you think, as they should, of what is most kind of iconically associated with Rosh Hashanah. Um, what's interesting, though, before I get to that, which is kind of, you know, like I said, it is the, in the popular imagination, the thing that Rosh Hashanah is most focused on, is that we, the earliest commentator on, this is my Chumash, on the Pentateuch, on the five books of Moses. Chumash means the five, the five thing, the, the, the five-part thing. It is the, five. the word Pentateuch and the word Chumash. Uh, Pentateuch is, is a direct translation of the word Chumash. Um, and so uh, the, the, the word, the, 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 the most, the earliest commentator or, or explicator of the five books of Moses was a convert to Judaism named Uncleus. Uncleus seems to have been a Roman um, he seems to have also been an expert linguist. He translates the entire Torah into Aramaic. Why does he do that? Well, uh, a fact that is little known is that the vernacular of the Jewish people historically, and for like a very long time, until the early Middle Ages, 
um, was Aramaic, not Hebrew. Hebrew was a language which you might in fact not know if you were not learned. You spoke Aramaic because the Jewish people are Arameans. We are from Aram, which is modern day Southern Turkey, Northern Syria. Um, and we take no responsibility for anything that's going on there now. We left a while ago, uh, but, but um, you know, obviously we did not, uh, you know, leave people we can be particularly proud of behind us. So because it's been a mess, but we speak Aramaic, that's our mother tongue. And that's why the Talmud is written in Aramaic, the Zohar, which is the most important work of Jewish mysticism is written in Aramaic. Uh, and the translation of the Chumash of the Bible into Aramaic was, in, the purpose of that was to enable um, the people, poi poloi, to understand the holiest book of the Jewish canon, because there was a problem. People didn't get it. People didn't know what was going on. And to this, and so that's why what you would do was you would read the Torah in public, and then there would be a live translation, right? There would be a guy with a really loud voice who would get up and bellow out the translation in Aramaic. And to this day, in the Yemenite community, they still do this, although they switched to Arabic at some point, if I'm not mistaken, understandably. Uh, so Uncleus is thus one of the oldest and most authoritative commentators on the Torah, but your Aramaic has to be pretty good, and your, your back general rabbinic knowledge has to be pretty good to know what he's getting at, because he's a really, really precise translator. And he translates that word that we was, mentioned earlier. Where was he coming? What, what was his ethnic background? Was he a he was, so Uncleus, as I mentioned, he was a Roman. He was a Roman. He so we would have known Latin and Greek. That would have, those would have been his. Presumably, correct. And 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 he, as a convert living in the land of Israel, at some point he picked. Not only did he pick up Aramaic, but he developed great proficiency in Aramaic. I mean, his Aramaic is the gold standard. It doesn't get better uh, than Uncle's Aramaic for you know early. Uh, there's a I think it's called classical area, classical era of Palestinian Aramaic, which um, is what we do not find in the Talmud. Well, right. The Talmud is is is, is written in what's called, and actually what is known to this day as Babili, which is Babylonian. It's really Syriac, Babylonian Syriac. But these are all people can fall asleep. But um, <laughs> I guess what I'm not sure anyone's listening, but you you and me. So <laughs> well, anyway, so Uncleus translates the word Terua, right? That word which we said as loud blast. He translated as translates it as Yivava. And Yivava, while it can mean something along the line, the lines of uh, of loud blasts, it also kind of implies wailing. It implies a certain degree of distress. And that kind of is already a clue, a very ancient, a, a, a early, a mid-second temple era clue to the idea that Rosh Hashanah, that the Jewish New Year is a somber time, it's a solemn time. And of course, the literal translation of the word teruah is generally taken to be a reference to this. I wrote my props, right? The shofar. This is a shofar. This is actually a pretty good shofar. I'm not going to blow it because my kids will wake up. It's very loud. But uh, the, 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 the prop that people associate, I think, most readily with Rosh Hashanah is the shofar. Which is blown. We blow a hundred shofar blasts. What is it? What is that? What is it? The shofar is, well, as you can see, it is an animal horn. Uh, I'm from animal. Brooklyn. If you think I ever grew up seeing one of those <laughs> things walking around in the streets on these 12th Street and Neptune Avenue. Oh, they were there. They were just in the halal slaughterhouses. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, but and I don't have any goo gone, as you can see. Um, I, I need some. But this, this sticker, 
um, tells us that it is a kosher shofar. It's not an. It is not plastic. It is not an imitation. That doesn't mean that I'm going to eat it. That's just that's so. It's a ram's a ram's horn. That's what hollowed ram's. out. Yes, it is. It is hollow. But that's not the end you blow through, right? This is the end you blow through, and like I said, not going to do this. It'll wake up the neighborhood, but um, it is a produces a very powerful sound, and it's something of a skill. I, I think. Um, anyone who's played a wind instrument knows that the wind instruments are uh, something that have a bit of a learning curve. But since there are no notes on the shofar, once you get it, you get it. You don't have to know music. You just have to know how to blow into a wind instrument. But it is generally assumed that it is to this the Torah refers when it says, do a teruah, do blasts, right? Make blasts as you, um, as uh, on the day of Rosh Hashanah. And it's not surprising, therefore, that people associate this as the primary thing of Rosh Hashanah. And that's really all the Torah tells us to do. Refrain from prohibited labor, so don't work the land, and go blow your trumpet. But as we noted, there are these little hints that there's a little more there. There's a little, there's, there, there's concealed beneath this kind of innocuous, like, oh, it's a day in which you blow a horn. There's yeah, a you whole... mentioned the Yom Zikaron, right? Exactly. There's another part. Right, Rosh Hashanah is also the Yom Hazikaron. This should not be confused with the Israeli civil holiday of the same name, right? Because Yom Hazikaron can be construed as, it, it can be read as in modern Hebrew as Memorial Day. And Israeli Memorial Day is called Yom Hazikaron. Um, and that's a different thing. That's a recent invention. We are talking about Rosh Hashanah as the Yom Hazikaron, the day of remembrance. What do you mean the day of remembrance? Who's remembering stuff? God's remembering stuff. And this is how we get into the more, the, the rabbinic characterization of Rosh Hashanah as the day of judgment. And so this is the day of remembrance. Day of remembrance would be the literal translation. Right. If you go to the left, so to speak, you get up, you get Memorial Day. Right. And if you go to the right, so to speak, <laughs> you have a day of judgment. Right. Okay, so remembrance alludes to this idea that there's accountability. One of right. my favorite hashtags, no accountability. <laughs> this is not the no accountability situation. This is the- Exactly. This yes, is accountability. Hashtag journalism. Um, but the, uh, here's the thing. And, and this is, I think, this really shines a spotlight, both to, to a certain degree, it shines a spotlight on the Jewish Christian dialectic, but to frame it more in modern terms, uh, it, it shines a spotlight on the godless versus um, godly dialectic. There are a lot of people out there who will be very eager to tell you that, that the practices, the traditional practices of Judaism are some kind of rabbinic revisionism. There's some kind of Later invention, they come from the Second Temple period. They reflect some greater societal, some basically, I mean, I, to me, this is like the oldest anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Theory. There's a cabal of rabbis who are falsifying texts and manipulating the public um, to get them to do things for their own power. So, I mean, this is, this is like the premise of 19th century Bible scholarship, and it's incredibly inane, especially if you know anything about history, uh, if you know how absolutely uninfluential the rabbis were at the end of the second temple period. I mean, they were, they were something. They were, they were on the radar. Like Josephus does dedicate 
some of his book that talking about them, but they were just one of many factions in the city of Jerusalem, uh, all of whom claimed to be the true Jews, uh, from the Hellenizing Sadducees to the extremist Essenes to the, uh, there was a whole kind of spectrum of somewhat Hellenized, but still Judaic. Um, and, and when I say Hellenized, Roman culture just kind of fastened itself onto Greek culture. Uh, they, they, they culturally appropriated just about the whole thing, um, soup to nuts. And they were like, but, but it's Roman now. Um, and and you know, they basically swallowed up what was formerly the Greek empire and uh, made, it, made it Roman. And so there were many Jews who were Roman citizens in good standing, which meant that they were full of Greek culture uh, and who were also what we would call kind of observant Jews. And they were interested, they were connected to the rabbis, but they weren't quite the rabbinic Jews. And when we talk about Jewish communities today, it's a mistake to say, oh, a lot, there's a large community of affluent uh, Jewish professionals in New York. That's just like Alexandria. It's like, <laughs> not really, even though, right, even though Alexandria was a city full of affluent Jewish craftsmen, right? But they weren't observing Judaism exactly like a devout Jewish Orthodox Jewish professional today, professional today might because a lot has happened between then and now. So you can kind of see where the impetus comes from to say this is all a, a plot by some rabbis, except that it doesn't make any sense because there's no motive. Um, the, the, they, they didn't, it didn't gain them anything. All they gained was abuse. They, they lived in poverty and misery. Um, but they believed, and we believe as holders of that tradition, that this was the right way to practice Judaism. Now, inherent to that theology, is that Jews must do some things and must not do other things. And I know that's a very controversial um, topic, but yes, there, there are things we have to do and things we have to not do. And that's like, that's most of the religion. Um, it, wait a minute though, let's take a step back. Mm. Aren't the holidays really just about people? Uh, aren't about they, family? Being kind. And, <laughs> and food. Good family food. and food, yes. that's my understanding. Right, and the Goyim tried to kill us, right? Isn't that usually so? It turns out that that's also not quite it. Although, although it should be, in seriousness, in seriousness, right? We, of course, celebrate all of our holidays with the exception of Yom Kippur, which is not that kind of holiday. We celebrate all of our holidays with feasting, right? We do feast, we do get together with family, we do celebrate, but we're not celebrating celebrations. Right. We don't we don't actually ever celebrate family or celebrate love. If, God forbid, I have dear friends who don't have families yet. Right, They're single. They live alone in apartments in New York. They're also going to observe these holidays. Right. They're not opting out. Oh, well, I don't really have a family, so I suppose I'll just, you know, go to Shake Shack. No, <laughs> that's not right. That's not how this is done. We're fortunate that, you know, there's certainly in New York, there are Jewish communities. It's very difficult to live as an Orthodox Jew outside a community. And, you know, you may be invited to someone's home if you don't yet have your own family. But it's the family enhances the festival experience. The festival primarily has a particular theological goal. Now, so what is that theological goal? Well, let's think about it. We've, we've, we've shown that it's the holiday, it's the day of remembrance. We know that there's a list of things Jews ought to do and ought not to do. If we are being remembered, if there is a yearly event on which during which remembrance occurs, it stands to reason that what is remembered before God is, well, 
have we done what we're supposed to do or not? Right? If it is the year, it's the day on which we remember, that implies a look back. We're doing a, a year in review. In a year in review, why, why do people look over the past year? Why do uh, CEOs do earnings calls? How have we done? How have we done so far? Well, here's the deal. Hopefully good, but maybe not so good. That is really the whole story of what is known today in the in the Orthodox world as the Elul season. And that is the month, Elul is the month before Tishrei, it's the month before Rosh Hashanah, in which traditionally devout Jews examine their actions. And they spend time thinking to themselves, well, how, how have I been doing? What kind of Jew am I? Am I, people try to do extra things that traditionally in Eastern Europe, uh, and I believe this was the case in, in uh, more ancient Jewish communities, they would, people would leave their homes for Elul. Even businessmen, people who worked for a living, they would, uh, during this season, they would leave their homes for weeks, weeks at a time even. They would travel maybe to, if they were Hasidic, they would travel to the court of their Rebbe, the religious leader um, who, was the, who, who was the inspiration of their particular Hasidic group. If they were not Hasidic, they might travel to one of the great yeshivas, one of the great uh, traditional schools in which they might have studied as a young person. And uh, they would take this time for spiritual improvement. They would remember, as God will remember on the day of judgment, what have I done and what can I do better? And, and was there consensus about, did everyone agree about what the standards were, about what they should be doing and not doing? Or was it really something you have to feel yourself? You have to know, you know, you decide for yourself what's going to be, you know, your form of observance. Right. So the question that, so, so I, I, I know what you're getting at, but I'm actually going to, I'm going to address what you're actually saying. And then I want to actually jump off of that to a similar I'm, gi I'm giving you the open door yeah. here. So what, what obviously, uh, what my father's getting at is that there is a phenomenon and it's not a new phenomenon, but it is an, a very popular phenomenon now, um, which privileges, if I had to describe it in a nutshell, it privileges um, the forward look over the backward look. So uh, much more than we consider, than, than some people consider it important to introspect, they consider it important to um, kind of madly headlong uh, forward. And whatever it is that pulls them forward, they are pulled by that thing. Because uh, without introspection, it, it's very hard to know what your drives are. Um, Introspection, by definition, calls for some objective standard which, to which you compare yourself, right? Someone who doesn't have an objective standard does not have to introspect, right? So if you, like a certain former president, define sin as being out of alignment with your values, you're just, I mean, we have Yiddish expressions for what you're doing, but uh, you're saying foolish and nonsensical things. Because if, the, if you define sin as when I'm not happy with what I've done, there's a very simple solution to sin, which is become happy with what it is you've done. Um, so introspection by definition calls for some objective standard. And of course, what my father's getting at is that the objective standard is Torah law. The objective standard is what we believe to be the law, which was handed down by Moses at Sinai, and that governs really the minutest details of how we live our lives. Um, and so the easiest breakdown of what it means that Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment is, I have a book, I have books on my shelf which tell me what I'm supposed to do every day, and we're just running, making sure I'm fulfilling all those protocols. 
Yeah, did everyone in Druid history have the ability to read all those books that you have on that shelf there and understand what, what their religious obligations were? I mean, that sounds like a really demanding kind of thing. I mean, you know that I had to spend a couple of years just to learn the, the, the most fundamental basics Right. were in those books and I was already an adult and you spent your your childhood you know you know being acquainted with them but I mean not every as you mentioned earlier not everyone has the benefit of that kind of educational opportunity so what do people do when they they're not so well acquainted with all those fine details and, and Rosh Hashanah how do they know what to look back on Exactly. So that's, that's a very good question. And yeah, I think it's, it is a really good. I'm very happy with that question. <laughs> and it, it relates in, in a way it relates more to Yom Kippur, right, which is the day in which we ask forgiveness for sins. That's more where you need this very specific knowledge of what what yes and what no, you know, and have I fulfilled those obligations. And that probably should shed a lot of light on why a lot of what we spend time doing on Yom Kippur is reciting a litany of sins. I've done this. I've done that. Al-chet, right? We, we say al-chet. God, forgive me for the sin that I have done by X, by, when we fill in the blank with pages, and, and there are people who say extra ones that are even longer because of exactly what you just described. Not everyone knows. But we don't do this on Rosh Hashanah, which is the day of don't judgment. Don't do that on Rosh Hashanah. But it's the day of judgment. So how can but we the day have of this retrospective? We're doing an audit, right? It's like an audit, or that's right. the audit is on Yom Kippur. Yeah, exactly. So that's that the tricky thing. Oh, okay. About, you're killing it. <laughs> that's the tricky thing that's the narrator thing. he knew the answers to most of the questions he was asking <laughs> rabbi coleman but still wanted to hear how rabbi coleman would answer right who is more so, erudite than he so there's there's a little there's a little play we do in this period and it's confusing because we talk a lot about repentance after rosh hashanah after rosh hashanah we can talk about what the focus of Rosh Hashanah is in a moment, but we talk about repentance after Rosh Hashanah because Rosh Hashanah, even more than it seems to be a an impetus to repentance, um, to, to repentance in advance of Rosh Hashanah, it seems to be something which should drive our desire for repentance as a result almost of Rosh Hashanah. And there's a traditional teaching which illustrates this, which we, where we say if someone is completely righteous. So when Rosh Hashanah, the day of reckoning, the day of judgment comes, right? So the heavenly court looks at him, they're like, wow, look at this guy. Uh, he's great. He's a tzaddik, right? He's perfectly righteous. And he gets written into the book of life, the book of life. Now, that doesn't mean that anyone who's a sinner is going to drop dead. What it means is that there is a kind of life, which is life, and there's a kind of life, which is death. And the righteous person is written into the, kind, the book of life. Right? If it were true that sinners drop dead instantly, there would be no sinners. And I can assure you that there are sinners. Um, but uh, there, we are, the, the truth is that most of us are sinners. Uh, the question is just how much. And this is acknowledged by the rabbinic teaching that I'm quoting, which says, well, what if you're a Bainani? What if you're just a regular guy? You're a guy who, whatever, you do your best. Sometimes you do well, sometimes you fail. Well, then, your, your judgment is held in abeyance until Yom Kippur. In other words, the slot between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which is 10 days, actually, if you include Rosh Hashanah, it's a total of 10 days, it's a little over a week of, of in-between days, that's really the spot where repentance happens. Repentance is where you look yourself over and say, I've done all these things wrong. 
And that's why, like I said, on Yom Kippur, you're going to go through in detail all these various things you've done wrong. And you're going to ask forgiveness. That's not looking forward. That's looking backward. On Rosh Hashanah, even though we call it the day of remembrance, what we're really going to do is make commitments going forward. That's really our job. And that's why we're allowed to approach Rosh Hashanah in such general terms. We don't have to yet get into the details of what have I done wrong. We need to talk more about what will I do right. And these are much more big ticket items. And they can loosely be broken down into one general concept. And that is the concept of of, uh, coronation. And we know, in fact, that the, there was an early mystical group, Ashkenazic mystical group in the 12th and 13th centuries in Germany, who were called the Hasidic Ashkenaz, the Hasidim, the pious of Ashkenaz, which is just the Hebrew word for the land surrounding the Rhine. Uh, uh, that, that's not to be confused with the modern designation of which people are more familiar with, of Hasidic or Hasidim, um, while there's definitely some affinity in terms you know what I mean? Why. You're not referring to Ashkenazim now, you're referring to Hasidei Hasid Ashkenaz. Right. Hasidim of Ashkenaz did not mean guys with... Necessarily. Right. right, you don't really know we'll, what they look like. We'll live in Borough Park and do diamonds, right? That wasn't, that, that's not the thing. This was a group of ascetic mystics. Um, they spent their time composing incredibly complex mystical poetry and doing observing very, very stringent interpretations of Jewish law, but they also are responsible for some of the most important theological uh, concepts and expressions that end up kind of constituting the way that the Ashkenazic worldview evolves, even though they pretty much vanish after a century or two as an active movement, but their thought leaves this lasting impact. And they used to call Rosh Hashanah, their shorthand for Rosh Hashanah was Coronation Day. On Rosh Hashanah, we crown God as the king of the world. And if you take a look, if you read Hebrew, even if you don't read Hebrew, you can read a translation at the prayers that we say on Rosh Hashanah, which are the main focus of the day. The prayers we say on Rosh Hashanah all revolve around this theme of crowning God. Now, it goes without saying that if we are crowning God our king, we intend to do exactly what he says we ought to do and not do anything he says we ought not to do. That goes without saying. We're going to get into those details in between now and Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah is a big picture day. Rosh Hashanah is we're pledging allegiance, and we pledge allegiance in a heartfelt fashion, in traditional, in emotional fashion, but it's not, it's not meant to be a depressing day. It's meant to be a serious but uplifting day. That's the... That's the Jewish New Year, which Rosh Hashanah, uh, which Rosh Hashanah is. So, why do I have to spend all day in synagogue for this? Mm. You know, I understand everything you said, it's, and I'm sure it's a lot of work. But why do I have to get up earlier than usual? And you know I love to get up early. And spend the, you know, what's the morning? Five hours, six hours? Easy. Mm-hmm. Easy, depending on, on, you know, just how, what, on what kind of service it is, and what kind of community it is. Right. 
go home for a, for a meal, barely time to, to rest, back to synagogue. And then right. let's not talk about do it again. Maybe maybe before we finish tonight, we'll talk about why there are two days of Rosh Hashanah. Why there are two days. But what, why, why all this business? What is all the business? What do the Jews do all day in the synagogue? So that's a very, yet another very good question, which uh, sometimes I ask myself. Um, Some of we, our best rabbinic friends have asked the same question very right. conspicuously. So the answer, the answer really is that there's, there's a tremendous amount of things to do um, on Rosh Hashanah in terms of observances and in terms of liturgy. Not least among them is the blowing of the shofar. We blow 100 shofar blasts over the course of Rosh Hashanah, the Rosh Hashanah prayers that adds up to a, a shofar blast doesn't just mean two. It's, there are three different varieties of them. They're complex, they're, they take time and they're done in perfect silence uh, because no one's supposed to, you're, not, you're supposed to hear nothing but the shofar. So that in and of itself chews up in e easily a half an hour uh, plus if you just extract all the shofar blowing, maybe more, half an hour, 45 minutes. Um, the prayer services are also very, very long because we have this beautiful accumulation of poetry, of liturgical poetry, which has uh, attached itself to the service over the years. From some of the, the poets who were, um, whose work we recite, and we don't, today almost nobody recites all the poetry, but the, the selected poetry we do recite was written by great, great rabbinical scholars, linguists and grammarians. Um, and what it's all about is in a world before multimedia, and this is staying still true, multimedia is just kind of this, this gross slab that has flopped down on top of the world of human experience. But in the, in the world before multimedia, um, the way that people communicated emotion and devotion was um, literate with literature and with verse. And so the best way to make the prayers inspiring and uplifting was to, to pull back a little on the formulaic nature of prayer. Prayer by definition gets a little formulaic and to infuse it with poetic spirit by reciting. And really we're talking about some of the most beautiful poetry of the Jewish liturgy. Um, deeply, deeply moving and deeply devotional uh, in its expression. And the purpose of it is to, is to engender in the heart of the believer inspiration towards the goal of crowning the king. Um, and that's why there are ancient melodies, which some of which are preserved for centuries, some of which were preserved for millennia. Um, we are very, very particular about not changing those tunes. There are certain things where we do allow popular tunes and there are things which we say, you're not, you're not allowed to change that. The, the, the prayer leader, no matter how musically creative he is, he needs to do certain things just the same way that they've been being done for re really very much for centuries. Um, and what that's all about is we're trying to preserve, we're trying to hold on to this moment of this height of spiritual inspiration, which Rosh Hashanah traditionally um, represented which has, this probably explains why many Jews who are not otherwise affiliated with the Jewish community find themselves back in Shul on Rosh Hashanah. There's a deep and profound pull. What's which, Shul? Where does this word Shul come from? I hear the Jews say it all the time. Well, yeah, so Shul, Shul literally means school. Um, it is a, 
uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, to this very day in Germany, the shul is the word for school. Um, I mean, school is the word for shul, if you want to put it that way. But it, it is, it is in, in, in Yiddish, it means synagogue. It is, it is such a common word that I would say, I think it has gained its place in modern Hebrew. I hear Sephardic Jews say shul. Um, it is, it's, a, it's a normal thing for them to say. Um, but even Jews who are not otherwise traditional find themselves back in shul on Rosh Hashanah. And part of that is this immense and profound pull that it has uh, because it represents this very, very pure and ancient observance. There aren't a lot of things that we can say we do just like our ancestors did. Even we, the most traditional, or you know, part of the overall block of the most traditional Jews, um, we acknowledge that modernity exists, right? You know, we drove before the holiday started. We drove to Shul. We're going to go home. We're going to sit in our air-conditioned homes, right? We're not Amish, but when we're in the act of prayer we can pray the exact same ways our ancestors, ways that our ancestors did. And that's what we're trying to achieve. That's the, uh, forgive the um, vulgar, that is the vibe that, um, <laughs> that we're going for with the Rosh Hashanah service. So before we wrap up, and I have asked people if they have questions, we don't have a ton of people watching because- it's A little niche. It's a, it's a, I don't mean a the selective appeal. Yeah, Mike. Why the two days? Why the two days? I mean, if you wanted to drive people off the street, <laughs> this would be the way to do it. But here's the deal, okay? Behind me, you can see um, my Jewish calendar. My Your Long Beach calendar. calendar. It is the yeah, Masifta of Long Beach. Um, the the uh, the uh, the calendar they send out to big donors like myself. <laughs> and myself. 180 bucks a year. <laughs> but uh, but the, the Jewish calendar is a little funny because it didn't used to look like this. We didn't used to have a calendar which started on a given date and ended on a given date. We always observed a lunar calendar, but what used to happen was when there was a Sanhedrin, when there was a great rabbinical council, and that doesn't just, there are a lot of uh, rabbinical councils today that think of themselves as being very great, but um, <laughs> I'm referring to it as the actual Sanhedrin, which sat in the temple and was the, it was the major um, religious authority, which, had, and it was the absolute authority, had the power to, uh, to do capital punishment. Um, it was the, it was the centralized rabbinic authority. They would, based on the observances of the cycles of the moon, when there was a new moon, they would declare it to be the beginning of the Jewish month, which is roughly every 30 days. And this is a very, very complex art, which involved a lot of lost astronomy, things that we that no one knows how to do anymore. Um, because of that, you basically, the only way you knew what day it was of, of the month was if you got, if a writer came from Jerusalem and said, well, the Sanhedrin has declared it the new month. So if it's the month of Elul, whenever the Sanhedrin declares it the month of Elul, that's when Elul is. Uh, the problem with that is eventually, especially after the destruction of the first temple, a major, major portion of the Jewish community found itself in Babylon, modern day Iran. Iran and Iraq, by the way, I should be noted that Iraq is not a real state. It was invented in the 20th century. Uh, historically, uh, that region um, meant many different things to the people who actually live there. Uh, and we're talking about a portion which kind of lies in between 
uh, it straddles Iran and Iraq and is known as Bavel or Babylonia. Um, many Jews, many, I mean, probably millions of Jews ultimately end up there. And a great deal of Jewish history is tied up with Persia and Babylonia. What happens is, here's the thing, you cannot, you can saddle your fastest camel, but you cannot get from Jerusalem to Babylonia fast enough for there to be a stable calendar in Jerusalem, uh, uh, over in Babylon. And so there was always a certain delay. There was a certain extent to which there was a, at least a day's delay in getting the news over. And there was a whole system of basically of semaphores of, of waving torches from hilltop to hilltop of the little very Lord of the Rings. Um, but uh, it was very difficult to communicate fast enough um, what day, what, whether the new month has started. And what that basically meant was, is that frequently in Babylonia, they weren't sure whether to start the new month yet, and they would have to wait a day. And so they would observe two days as potentially being the beginning of the new month. I really, in other words, maybe really the new month started today, but maybe it'll only start tomorrow. And what that means is that during that time, at any given date on the Jewish calendar, it was like, yeah, well, maybe it's today, but it might also be yesterday. We don't know. Um, I'm sorry if that sounds confusing. It's because it is. It's very difficult for us to conceive of. We don't, calendars don't work this way anymore. Uh, now, once the Jewish people um, returned to the land of Israel and the beginning of the second temple period, so there was, there was basically a split. There was, half the Jewish people was observing this calendar, which included what's known in Aramaic as the Sveka de Yoima, the we don't know what day it is. And then the, the Jews in the land of Israel were observing that we do know what day it is. What eventually happens is because of the complexity and all the astro astronomical stuff that's associated with this, um, one of the great second temple rabbinic figures, Hillel Azakim, Hillel the Elder, uh, he says, enough of that. That's too complicated, and we don't know if we're going to be able to sustain that long term. And so he does, and there's the people who are good at this, and that's not me, um, uh, can tell you just what a brilliant and immense project this is. But basically, he sets in stone the Jewish calendar. He, he puts in place the calculations, which basically, ena basically enable us to calculate the calendar for for, from here on all the way till infinity. And the amazing thing about it is there are these rules about certain kinds, certain holidays yes. can never be allowed to fall out on right. certain days of the week and exactly. they don't. And or it's, it's, never falls on Shabbos, it's period. Phenomenal. It's yeah. phenomenal. It's, it, is, it is immensely complex and, and just the beginning of these sorts of conversation makes my eyes glaze over. Um, but this much I, I can tell you, which is that, well then this is very interesting because it turns out that, yeah, there's this fixed calendar. So now we can fix, send the fixed calendar. All we have to do is write it up and send it over to Babylonia and everyone knows what day it is. We've solved the problem. So the people of Babylonia write a letter to the sages of Israel and they say, okay, glad you worked out this thing. What are we supposed to do now? Should we change our whole way of life? And so the sages of Israel wisely write back and they say, no, it's never a good idea to uproot something so deeply rooted. And what you should do is you should preserve the custom of your forefathers is in your hands. You should do, right? That's, this is what we know how to do best as Jews. Right? as Jews who look back. Preserve what it is your ancestors did. That's the best heuristic with which to engage the world. Did my father do this? Did my teacher do this? That's probably what I should do. And even though- Even if we don't feel, even if that isn't relevant for us the right. way- 
even though you, so uh, this is a whole different thing and and maybe uh, we can rant about it some other time there, there, there is a there's a self-fulfilling prophecy that can happen when you decide that something isn't relevant which is that it won't be relevant <laughs> um, and then there's you know it's like it's like you read books right books aren't relevant until you read them Oh, every work of great literature. No one, no one. Wait a minute. I'm pretty sure I can tell from the cover how I should judge the book. Isn't that about well, right? So, so, <laughs> you know, nobody ever, <laughs> no one ever, no one ever like thought of, you know, Proust before they read it. <laughs> That's not one of the options on the table. The idea of reading a book of any literary or artistic experience is give me something that I don't have yet. And if you, you know, some says so maybe it's a little bit our fault if we make the Torah seem like a set of just a set of rules as opposed to a entire world and a way to live life. So people say, well, rules sound hard. There are already enough rules as it is. I have to wear a mask there and I need this shot. And I, and you know, it all gets a little dizzying, right? So, and I also have to make sure that I don't mix milk and meat, leave me alone, right? But the truth of the matter is that it's much better than that, it's much deeper than that. Um, but it's very hard to explain while standing on one foot uh, just how much better and deeper it is. And there are things that must be experienced. I cannot, I, I, I loved reading Proust, but I can't convince you here now. I can't give that over to you. The best I can do is try reading it. It's great. You'll really like it, right? That's the best I can do. So there are things that need to be experienced. Um, and, uh, and this is one of them. This is one of them, I think. I think you're right. And uh, having, having had that, experience in a way that you never quite did in many respects, not the Proust right. actually that you did and I didn't do. <laughs> but, you know, the intimidating aspect of going through Rosh Hashanah in the traditional way in, in, its all, in all its fullness, which I did not grow up with, right. was so, in, you know, as I say, it was intimidating. But I, you, you jump into it because you say, okay, I, I've, I've made a commitment to do it as you say, the way my forefathers did it. And there must, I, you know, once I accepted that there was a reason, a good reason for them to have done it by virtue of their being my forefathers and let me immerse myself in it and experience it. Right. And it took a while. It wasn't like that first, for that first Rosh Hashanah. I can imagine, right. Just ask just what's going on mind-boggling but it be, eventually you get to know the songs you get to know the prayers you get more comfortable with the liturgy you begin to see patterns and then it's nostalgic right then it's like oh I, this is my favorite part as soon as you have a favorite part you're plugged in because it was probably your great-grandfather's favorite part too and right? then, I mean, the good parts are pretty good like, they're like pretty universally <laughs> good you know the part where we go like God decides who will live and who will die, who will be rich and who will be poor. Everyone who's responsible for paying his bills gets a little <laughs> like, okay, all right, you know, it's on now. So did your great grandfather. So did his great grandfather. And, and, so Rab and, and yeah. Rabbi, Rabbi Coleman, are you going to be leading any any services and uh, in, in reminding people of any of the good parts this year? I will be. Yes, I, I'm going to be leading Musaf, which is the uh, literally means the added service. It is the added, the service you add on a holiday, but of course the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah is a particularly gigantic added service. So I will be having that honor on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, um, uh, which is 
obviously a uh, a humbling responsibility. I've done it before, and I'm uh, I feel good about doing it again. But I I'm actually pretty deep in preparation. If you can see all the the tabs that are open, my uh, I keep a Google Doc where I manage the the various details which again if anyone's still on the stream they will certainly be driven off if i start droning on about those but uh but they understand from the beginning of the stream that you can't use that google doc on, on rosh hashanah that's right that's right <laughs> it would it would be printed out and tucked into my uh into my master this is by the way arch call master not a sponsor but but, but a client <laughs> nice <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that's Usher. That's thank you for this, for this, for this, all these many, many explanations to all these important questions, for taking the time out of, of the evening to share it with the 14 people who are with us tonight. Uh, and of course, the live stream will be available on all the places where I make things available. So if anyone wants to hearken uh, back to it at some point, uh, I, I think hopefully that they will. And we'll jack up the SEO because I think you're good at explaining things. And uh, probably when people are like awake and doing things in New York, I, I suspect that that might be a, or, and not like drowning. Or, well, drowning or, or dealing with a basement that is starting to drown yeah. us. So on that note, thank you. Thank you very, we just got to thank you from, uh, thank you for loving it. And thank you, Yisrael Asher and to everyone Remember, Rosh Hashanah is Monday night. We'll talk. You'll hear from me. Those of you who follow me in all kinds of ways will be reminded. And if uh, I'm happy to ask questions, or if they're hard questions, to forward them to more knowledgeable people, such as my uh, my son or Miss um, Coleman. Um, and you know uh, about this topic. Uh, but then we're going to go back to our usual, predominantly secular feed. <laughs> Uh, start, you know, after this, after this broadcast. But thanks a lot, Usher. Good night, and say hi to everybody. Thanks so much. Thanks thank for the you. opportunity. Have a wonderful night. So long. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com, or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.